Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, the very last chapter. We're finally there. And we're looking at the last few verses. So we're going to begin in verse 22. Read on through uh, to the end of the chapter. I would ask you if you're able, please stand together with me as we read God's Word. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send their greetings. Grace be to you all. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, again, it's been uh, over a year since we were since we started the book of Hebrews. Uh, several sermons, probably uh, fifty or so sermons uh, in this uh, in this book. It's interesting that here as he's wrapping it up and as he is uh, giving some personal uh, dialogue to those whom he's writing, he says, uh, uh, bear with my word of exhortation for I've written you only a short letter. Uh, it's one of the longer books in the New Testament and I believe uh, it is certainly one of the, the longest of the epistles that is there. But as we say, it's a letter, it's an epistle, but um, it is a little bit different sort of letter. Uh, it's not like the other epistles that we see. In fact, many have, have uh, suggested, and I think most scholars agree today, that um, the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is from a pastor to this congregation. It maybe was his congregation at one time. And that he is writing to them this letter, but it's not just a regular letter. It is a sermon. It's almost like a, ma a sermon manuscript that he's written and sent to them. So this would be kind of an example of a first century sermon. And if you, in fact, you want to try this to see this afternoon when you go home, you can take the book of Hebrews and then open it up and read it out loud. And it's supposed to take just a little bit less than an hour to read the whole thing out loud. And so you say, well, then first century sermons would go on for about an hour or so. Only he says here um, that it was a short letter. <laughs> so maybe, I mean, several times in this letter, especially in chapter 11, he says, you know what, there's a lot more to say here. I can't tell you about all these other people. You remember in chapter 11, Roll Call of the Faithful? I don't have time to tell you about them. A letter would be too large. And I think that several times he wants to go on in more detail in certain places, but he just has to leave it. So maybe first century sermons were even longer than that. I try to make mine about 30 minutes, but uh, first century, you can maybe understand why Eutychus uh, fell asleep in the window, right? When Paul was preaching, he, he fell out and broke his neck, and had to, Paul had to go healing. Uh, the sermons were maybe longer back then. Um, I'm not so sure, but if, if this is an example of a first century sermon, uh, it's just a manuscript of it, they were a little bit longer. Um, he says it's a short letter. 
Um, and bear with my word of exhortation. He's exhorting them. We're going to look at some of that exhortation here in just a minute, review some of it. But before we do this, this review that we're going to do over the whole book and then the teaching that is, that is there, I want you to I want to deal with just a couple of things a little bit here. Verse 23, he says, I, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. Uh, it's surely the same Timothy that Paul knew and that Paul writes the letters to. Um, the, the close acquaintance with Paul, we didn't know that he was ever in jail, but he obviously was in prison for something and probably for preaching the gospel, but he's about to be released, or he has been released, we don't know exactly what his relationship is with the author of Hebrews. Um, we don't think that the author of Hebrews was Paul, um, but Timothy has a close relationship with the author, and uh, we don't know exactly why uh, he doesn't go on without Timothy to see the people he's writing to, but he's waiting for Timothy, and if Timothy comes, then he will come. Uh, so we're not real sure about some of that. We know that it's there, but we don't quite understand all the historical data surrounding that. In verse 24, he says, Greet all your leaders and all God's people. And he says, Those from Italy send you their greetings. Um, we think that he wrote the letter to uh, uh, Jewish Christians who were in Rome, so he's not writing from Italy, so it seems like maybe some people from Italy, from Rome, have come together with him where he is and so he's he's they're saying send our greetings they you know that's our church right send our greetings to them and so um, these are just some things here in the last few verses we don't completely know all about but uh, they're there I wanted to uh, this morning kind of go in way of review of the entire book so you see in your outline or, or your in your bulletin, it's not really an outline, it's a list of five questions. And as we go through this review of the book, hopefully these questions will be answered for you. And um, these are things that you can go home, take home, and uh, review with your your family. Okay? So listen this morning, hopefully all these questions will be answered. If you don't get it, then hopefully somebody else in your family got it. So, you know, begin uh, thinking along those lines as we uh, go through the message this morning. First of all, first thing I want us to review is uh, like any sermon you see in the New Testament, whoever's preaching uses a whole lot of Scripture. And the author of Hebrews uses a whole lot of Scripture as well. He's constantly going back to the Old Testament and quoting it. Uh, I think that's a pattern that we're to use in our day. And age in preaching, we're to use scripture, and scripture is to be the base of it. Um, we we shouldn't be saying, uh, well, this newest uh, uh, statement in uh, psychology, we're going to deal with that, and just fill in all other sorts of stuff. No, we we preach from the Bible, and we use the Bible as our source of authority. Now, the author of Hebrews, in doing that, shows that he thinks the Bible is quite important. And that the basis of all of his teaching comes from the Bible as well. And the reason for that, the reason he thinks that uh, he needs to base all of his teaching on the Bible is he believes God's the one who has given us the Bible. He believes that the Bible is God's Word. 
For sake of consistency with what we're going to do here right now, there, there's a Bible in the pew racks in front of you. If you don't have an NIV, I would ask you to go ahead and take that because uh, it'll be easier to follow along with us um, because I'm going to be, we're going to be reading a whole lot of different verses here. And, uh, and to begin with, I want us to see the author's view of Scripture. I told you that he believes it's important to use in, in his sermon, and he does. I told you he believes that it's God's word, and I want to show that to you, okay? So, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to begin with verses 5 through 8. And I want you to see, as he, as he quotes from Scripture, what he does. Now, a, a lot of these uh, quotes he uses, some from the different prophets, but a whole lot from the Psalms and a lot of things that David has written. But I want you to see what he says about it here. Psalm, uh, Hebrews 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings forth his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of his angels, he says his, he makes his angels winds, his servants, flames of fire. But about his son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be a scepter of your kingdom. You see it? God says, uh, God uh, brings forth his son in the world and he says and then uh, concerning the angels he says and then about his son he says who's doing the speaking in all of these Old Testament references he's giving who's he attributing it to well it's God God's the one that said this David wrote it or Isaiah wrote it down with the pen but he says God says look in verse 10 he also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You see it again. Who's, who is he also says? God is the one who says. These Old Testament scriptures we're reading, who's saying it? God's saying it. Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 4. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all of his work. Who is the he said? Well, God again. Hebrews 8, verse 8. But God found fault with the people, and he said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see it? How many times there have we seen him attributing to the Old Testament? This is what God says. Now, go back to chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 11 through 13. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, who's the one saying it? Jesus. He says, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. I am the children God has given me. Whose word? He's quoting the Old Testament. Who's he put, whose mouth is he putting that in? It's Jesus. 
Jesus is the one saying these things. Look with me in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, when Christ came to the world, He said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. What's He doing? He's quoting from the Psalms. Who's He saying said? Jesus. Christ, the Son. <clears throat> All right, um, go to chapter 3, verse 7. So we've seen him attributing uh, these quotes, these Old Testament quotes to God, uh, to uh, Jesus. And now Hebrews chapter seven or chapter 3, verse 7. As the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, who is saying it? Holy Spirit. And um, again, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 17, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord, and I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds, and so on. Who is he attributing this Old Testament quote to? It's the Holy Spirit. So we see him saying, God speaks this. This is stuff that Jesus speaks. This is what the Spirit has given to us. One more thing. So we see that he looks at the Old Testament as God's Word. This is God speaking. He says it over and over and over again, showing that he looks at the Old Testament as God's Word. And uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. And he adds just a little bit to it here. Hebrews 4, verse 7. Therefore God again will set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as it was said, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God is speaking, but how is he speaking? Through David. This is the way Scripture came to us, right? All Scripture we have. There was a human author who took the pen and, and wrote it down, but what words are he, is he writing? Well, he's writing God's words. So when we look at the Bible, and the author of Hebrews shows us this, the Bible is God's Word. It is the, as we would say, uh, our only rule of faith and practice. And as God's Word, God who doesn't change, His Word doesn't change, uh, and that it is... It is uh, infallible. Uh, it is inerrant in its original writings. And that's the way the author of Hebrews looks at it. And that's the way we need to look at it as well. One more thing about a scripture here. Hebrews chapter 4 once again. In verse 12. He says, For the word of God is living and active. It wasn't just God's Word back then and God has changed His mind. It's still God's Word for us today. It's still living, still active, and still uh, able to uh, work its way into our lives and change our lives. This is, what author of, this is the way the author of Hebrews looked at Scripture. That's the reason there's so much Scripture, and that's the reason there's so much Scripture throughout the New Testament. Anytime you see someone preaching, they're using Scripture. That's the reason we use Scripture and I'm preaching here. 
That's the reason even our worship service is trying to be guided by Scripture. We have a lot of Scripture in our worship service, our call to worship, our call to uh, confession, our uh, assurance of forgiveness, our benediction. They're all from the Bible. And we, we believe that that's important. God is the one speaking. and We need to listen. We need to follow it. And we need to let it work its way into our lives as the Holy Spirit takes it and uses it in our lives. One other thing about uh, Scripture here as well is the way that the author of Hebrews interprets it, especially as he interprets the Old Testament. Because, the, and I'm going to say this, he's interpreting it the way that there are Christians in our daytime that don't interpret the Bible this way, don't interpret the Old Testament this way, but I want you to see how he interprets the Old Testament. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. He's looking at the Old Testament. He calls it the law. He says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. What is the Old Testament? He says, well, it's a shadow. It's not the reality. He points this out so many times when he, when he looks at the Old Testament and he sees their, their practice back then and says, you know what? All that's just looking forward to Jesus coming. All of that is part of the promise of Him coming. Now, when He comes, He fulfills all that, and we don't go back to it. We don't go back to it. That's one of the big things He's trying to tell them here is, don't go back to that. All of that is looking forward to the reality to come in Jesus. Now, He's come. Why would you leave the reality and go back to the shadow? Saying, don't do that. He, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 he says, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater, more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. Where's the true tabernacle? Where's the true uh, temple of God? It's a, it's a heavenly one. The, the one that was built in Jerusalem was merely a shadow of the reality in heaven. Where is Jesus? Where is, is Jesus uh, seated right now as our high priest? He's seated in the real tabernacle, in the real temple in heaven. Why would you want to go back to that shadow? Hebrews 9.24, once again, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered into heaven itself and now appears, uh, and now to appear for us in God's presence. He's looking in Scripture under the Old Testament as the Old Covenant, which is a shadow, not the reality, but the shadow is looking forward to the reality that has come in Christ Jesus. Now those who are in the Old Covenant, part of the Old Covenant, he's going to say they're part of the same family we're in. They're not, since they were under the Old Covenant, of the uh, 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 where the shadow, the promise was coming. That doesn't mean they're part of a different family. God doesn't have two different peoples. He has one people. He shows that this continuity in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40, through chapter 12, verse 1. He says, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We're part of the same family. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a, a great 
cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the, the race that is marked out for us. You see what he's doing? As he looks at Scripture, he looks at this Word of God that he believes is absolutely God's Word and that it is still living and active today he says the proper way of interpreting it, especially as you're looking at the Old Testament, you see, that's the promise about the coming Messiah. The Messiah has come. That was the shadow. This is the reality. Okay? So that's the way he is interpreting Scripture. Okay, well, let's go on. So that's kind of his view of Scripture. Uh, I want us to see a, another thing that is so very important to the author of Hebrews as he goes... Uh, through this sermon, preaching to these people, he wants to show them the reality of Christ and how he is superior to anything in the Old Testament. So you see this language appearing over and over again. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. He became as much superior to the angels as, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Christ is superior to the angels. He's already said he's a superior revelation. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, Jesus was found of, worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house is greater honor than the house itself. He is greater than Moses. He is superior to Moses. So Christ is superior to the angels, superior to Moses. Um, chapter 7. We see that he has a, a superior high priesthood to all of the old uh, high priests. Uh, chapter 7, verses 23 and 24. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. This is superior to theirs. They die off and their priesthood is over. But his goes on and on and on. Chapter 7, verse 27. Unlike the other priests... His is superior. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all and then he offered himself. He's superior to them. Only one sacrifice. They had to come day after day. And every year on the Day of Atonement had to, had to bring a sacrifice. But Jesus' sacrifice is superior because it is once for all and now it is done. He mentions in uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and also chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 the fact that where Jesus is. He is in the heavenly sanctuary. He is in the true uh, temple in heaven. And what's His posture? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We saw that in the Old Testament, the high priests that go into their work in the temple, they're never seated because their work is never done. But he makes a point and he comes back to it. He is seated because his work is completed. It's done. He is superior to those Old Testament priests. Chapter 8, verse 6. But the ministry of Jesus, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, and it is found founded on better promises. Jesus comes as a superior um, mediator of a superior covenant. Chapter 9, verse 12. 
again about his sacrifice. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Why is this important? We see it in chapter 10, verse 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All of those sacrifices were simply looking forward to another sacrifice. Those sacrifices were not accomplishing what that sacrifice would. His is superior to all of theirs. So throughout this book of Hebrews, we see the supremacy of Christ in all things. The author of Hebrews wants them to see that. Now the reason he wants them to see that is because the, the Hebrew Christians, as I mentioned already, are encountering some persecution in some very difficult times. And they're thinking, maybe this is God's punishment to me because I left the truth. And he's saying, no, that's not it at all. You're thinking you left the truth and you need to go back to the truth. That's not it at all. If you do, you're doing the absolute wrong thing. You don't need to do that. You need to persevere in the midst of these difficult times. So I think if you're looking for a main theme, by the way, that's one of the questions. If you're looking for a main theme in the book of Hebrews, he is writing to tell these Hebrew Christians in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your tribulations, in the midst of your trials, don't turn away. Don't turn back. Be the wrong thing to do. Jesus is superior. Why would you go back to the, to the unsuperior? And so he, he encourages them time and time again not to turn away. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. We must pay more careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Chapter 3 verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. See to it brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you uh, may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Don't turn away. Don't turn away. He says over and over again, do not be hardened. Don't drift away. Chapter 3, verse 15. As it's just been said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Hebrews 4, verses 11 and 12. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the examples of disobedience. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. He was promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance. 
the race that is marked out for us. Hebrews 12, verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Hang in there. Don't turn away. Hebrews 12, 11 and 12, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on, however, produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Hebrews 13, verse 9, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Do you see it? Do you see it how many times throughout the book he says, Don't turn away. Don't drift away. Be careful. Don't harden your hearts. Don't have a sinful heart turning from God. Don't, don't give in to sin's deceitfulness. I don't want anybody to fall short. Don't become lazy. Hold unswervingly. You need to persevere. Run with perseverance. Strengthen your feeble arms and knees. Do not be carried away. All kinds of strange teachings. You see it? In the midst of all these things, there's this temptation to, to leave, but don't do it. Don't do it. The reality is come in Christ Jesus and He is far superior to anything else that is out there. He is the truth. He's the, the real high priest. He's the one who's accomplished for you by His work on the cross what blood of bulls and goats never can. Don't turn away. Stand firm. Even in the midst of trials and hardships, stand firm. One more thing. As he's telling them, don't turn away. You stand firm. You persevere. Now he tells us how to do it as well. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. He comes back to it, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How are, how are we going to persevere? How are we going to keep from turning away? How are we going to keep from falling? How do we do that? How did Peter keep from drowning? Right? He's out, uh, Jesus is out walking on the water, and Peter says, let me come to you. And he says, well, come on. He gets out, and he's walking on the water until he starts to look away, and he notices the, 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 the waves and the wind and all these things, and he starts to sink. He's taking his eyes off of Jesus, and he starts to sink. He says, Lord, help me. Shortest prayer in Scripture, I believe. Lord, help me. And Jesus takes him up. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. When we begin to look at other things and we're distracted by so many of the things that the world has out there for us, we get our eyes off of Jesus. We begin to sink. We begin to drift away. We find that we have drifted away so far that we, we wonder how in the world we ever got there. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. In the middle of your hardships, your troubles, your tribulations, the difficult things that are happening to you on a daily basis, don't turn away. Don't even think of turning away. Rather, think of keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. I believe that's the message of Hebrews for us. 
believe that's the message that all of Scripture points us to. Promise in the Old Testament, God's Word, looking forward to the reality to come in Jesus. He comes. He is the su superior one who fulfills all that for us. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Let's pray.